One of the most noticeable features in recent trade union history is the conflict between the rank and file of the trade unions and their officials. And it is a feature which, if not remedied, will lead us all into muddle and ultimately disaster. We have not time to spend in abuse. Our whole attention must be given to an attempt to understand why our organisations produce men who think in the terms they do and why the rank and file in the workshops think differently. Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. This is episode 19. So hi guys and welcome to Labour Days. Um, I'm back. Uh, very glad. Welcome very back. glad to be back. here. Although we're offering a, we're operating a sort of one in one out policy because although Ellie's back, our producer Liam isn't here. So there's there's every possibility this that this is going to be awful. The, <laughs> the episode is just going to the the, the the audio will be completely. It might just be white noise. It, it might be. we might not even be recording right now. <laughs> if I've it got is, no idea. We will pass it off as like an experimental sound art piece. Anyway, Ellie, you're welcoming the listeners. Yeah, so today we're going to be looking at a pamphlet written by our very own Ed the Brain Mustel. Yes. Um, And so Ed has written a pamphlet called The Sheffield Workers Committee, Rank and File Trade Unionism During the First World War, which is very good, we've all read it, it's very exciting. Um, Have you you read it? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, we've read it. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. This is actually a kind of follow-on episode from the last episode, which was uh, Rank and File Trade Unionism 101. Um, And although it's not an exact sort of follow-on, I think we will be looking, part of Ed's pamphlet is looking more deeply into things to do with the Rank and File and when the Rank and File kind of tries to take over the union. So, yeah, without any further ado, Ed. Before before Ed gets into his presentation, I mean, I think it is... um worth uh, just saying this for the kind of really loyal Labour Day listeners who will who will understand how significant this is. This this episode is really very much Mustill's Minneapolis. The Sheffield Workers Committee is, is Ed's kind of equivalent fixation to my obsession with uh, the Minneapolis teams to strike. And I have to say it is to Ed's credit that while I maintained a, a kind of ceaseless campaign of like incessant lobbying until I was allowed to do a whole episode about Minneapolis teams to strike. Ed has very patiently and calmly <laughs> waited until the kind of organic trajectory of the, or the, the, the thematic trajectory has led has led us to to the the logical endpoint. It's because I knew I had I had faith in the in the quality of my material. <laughs> I knew it would it would it would it would come up sooner or later. You know. But, but, it, I, but I've also had the discipline to not mention it every single <laughs> fucking episode for the last two years. Well, I mean, that, that is very impressive. But as Ellie was saying, in all seriousness, I think this is a useful segue from the last episode where we were talking in quite general conceptual terms about what is the bureaucracy and what is the rank and file. And this, this episode, focusing on your pamphlet, would allow us to talk in a little bit more concrete and practical detail about one particular historical experience of rank and file organisation. So do you want to tell us the story, Ed? Yeah, yeah. So it's um, 
It's a pamphlet I wrote a couple of years ago. Um, it's just had a second print run. I'll get the plug out of the way at the start, otherwise I'll forget to do it later. <laughs> um, you can buy it from Spokesman Books, which uh, they have an online uh, shop that you can get it from. Um, and it came out of um, uh, years and years and years ago now when I did my uh, undergrad uh, history dissertation about trade unionism during the First World War in Britain. Uh, and this is sort of zeroing in on uh, the Sheffield Workers Committee as a kind of local phenomenon. I mean, I think uh, the nearest thing that people will probably have heard of would be the Clyde Workers Committee, which was a sort of contemporaneous um, First World War. Red Clyde uh, side. Yeah, Red Clyde side, the um, uh, Willie Gallagher, John McClane, all of that. Um, for people that know about that, this is something that's happening more or less the same time, but has had uh, less sort of exposure because it, it didn't result in the sort of, um, well, the sort of pitched battle that uh, ended up happening on Red Clyde side after the war finished. It, it never got to those sort of uh, heights of uh, sort of violent struggle in that in that sense. So but, just, just for absolute clarity, then give us the, give us the kind of... Um chronological time frame what years are we talking yeah so we're talking about um obviously the 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 first world war breaks out in 1914 and as we've mentioned in in a couple of other episodes in in the past like that has a really like uh uh shocking impact on the labor movement because the years before the first world war yeah yeah the, the the years before like there was a general feeling that like the labour movement's sort of going in the right direction, like um, across Europe and even to an extent America, like uh, winning elections, winning more votes in every election as, as time goes on. And uh, the trade unions are kind of growing in a, you know, not in a particularly sort of linear way, but generally speaking, having sort of peaks and troughs, but generally growing and organising new groups of workers. And there's a kind of, I think, to be a sort of socialist at that time, I think the vast majority of people would have this assumption that, like, well, you know, in my lifetime, we're going to basically see socialism mm. through through one means or another, whether it's like winning a parliamentary majority and legislating for it, or whether it's having a kind of uh, revolutionary upheaval that results in a socialist society. Um, and... 1914 comes along and the world is like plunged into this like barbaric slaughter and the labor movement basically sort of responds to it by not really responding to it at all and or by no, sort well, of supporting it well most mm. most i wouldn't say supporting it because the bulk of labour movement opinion when the war breaks out is basically like this is bad but there's nothing we can really do about it. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there, I think it's a minority actually who say well we're Britain's fighting on the side of uh, democracy and fighting on the side of right and, and what the British government's doing is, is fine and we go along with it. I think even the people who don't vociferously oppose it, they're not vociferously opposing it really for like uh, pragmatic reasons, to be honest. Like it's it's sort of uh, 
this is this is a, a fact of life now. There's a war on, mm. and there's little we can do about it. But you do sort of talk about it in the pamphlet. Um, oh, correct me if I'm wrong. But um, I remember you talking about trade unionists feeling kind of like, even if they were kind of anti-war, to oppose the war, to just be sort of ripped to shreds by by the public, by yes. even by the trade union members, mm. like. Mm. The sort of the feeling of opposing war is like that that was too much of a fight for them to have. Yeah. Which I actually found really interesting, especially when you get further down. Um, because that starts to change, right? There's a very noticeable shift in the in the general atmosphere. Yeah. Which in yeah, I mean generally I found interesting because all right, we're not facing the first world war. Um, but we are well, in yeah, anyway. sort of, yeah, we are in sort of times of crisis and I think there's often a lot of people who who feel like they can't fight things because it's popular and also the popular opinion doesn't change and therefore you don't need to like plug away in the in-between bits when actually like this is a very good representation of, of, of the time a very good example of a time when actually popular opinion can shift massively yeah, over yeah. huge issues yeah and, and very quickly as yeah well. and i'll yeah and i'll talk about that a bit later in terms of the um when when public opinion does shift against the war and what the what the response to the um the, the shop stewards movement that's developed uh, is is to that um but it's certainly true that at the beginning of the war that public feeling is is broadly in favor of it and the labor movement's sort of caught on the hop mm. and the traditional reading is that there's kind of industrial peace um sort of breaks out in the um in in the workshops in the factories in the mines um straight away and people might know not least because i bang on about it all the time but and it's something that we've also talked about uh, uh, previously in in other episodes that the period immediately before the first world war was a period of great industrial struggle uh, in britain and also in uh, other countries in europe and america and there were significant uh, industrial disputes uh, and a, a, a real fear on the part of the ruling classes mm. that like things were getting out of hand as that, that's, you know. the, that's the period that's referred to as the great unrest, yeah right? yeah so okay. from about 1910 to right up until the outbreak of war and the, the traditional historiography is like war happens and then industrial peace mm -hmm. breaks out straight away uh, when i was researching the pamphlet you realise that's not the whole story because actually in the early months of the war, people are still going on strike and there are still, and it's sort of like, uh, you're almost sort of business as usual sort of, mm. sort, of, sort of stuff. Just before you carry on with the kind of narrative history that the pamphlet tells, can you maybe just sort of set the scene a little bit more by, by talking about, um, briefly the, the 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 types of workers and the types of workplaces that um feature in this story yeah so it's a story of um to begin with anyway of largely of skilled workers and skilled engineers so um sheffield as people will know if, if you know anything about sheffield you know that it's a city that makes steel and it still does uh, and it's um it makes a great amount of steel now, even though there's probably not more than a couple of thousand people actually still mm. working in the steel industry. But at the time, you're talking close to 100,000 people working in the steel industry between Sheffield and Rotherham in the Don Valley. And among those workers is a skilled set of engineers who will do jobs like um, 
maintaining the machinery, setting up the machinery, um, like very vital jobs that um, without which the production lines can't actually function at all, uh, which is what gives them their sort of industrial leverage, mm. right? Because a lot of a lot of it by that point was automated to the to the point that while you still had to do a kind of uh, six year apprenticeship or whatever, technology had kind of outstripped the actual need to do that. Yeah. Unless you were a very skilled engineer. Mm-hmm. And the more skilled you were, the more valuable you were to the employers. And one of the important things to remember about these blokes, and they are all blokes until the, until the war, <laughs> um, is that they had a kind of um, a culture or, or a sort of privileged position where traditionally if an employer was not treating you that great, you could kind of just up sticks and go and work mm. for someone else. Yeah. And one of the big things that they kick back against during the war is when the sort of the, the sector is not quite, but essentially nationalised and brought under government control in order to make war materials. And part of that is saying to people, you cannot leave your job without a certificate from your employer allowing you to do that and go and work somewhere else. And that's really cut against the kind of independence that the skilled engineer had kind of developed pre-war mm. and being in that position where you could sort of pick and choose how you work. Um, uh, Jack Murphy, who is, as we'll see, is one of the key figures in the Sheffield Workers Committee. He's and, and, sort of, and, uh, and from, from whom the, the quote in the cold open was, and we yeah, didn't yeah. mention that yet, but the, 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 the quote that opened the episode is, is from Jack Murphy. So yeah, from, a, from his pamphlet about... about uh, uh, workers committees and which and which if you, if you only read one pamphlet about um the rank and file workers committee model it shouldn't be mine it should be jack it should be jack if you read two maybe read something by daniel delay <laughs> if you but read, if you read three or more maybe maybe give it to them tell, tell us more about jt murphy so so he recounted in his uh, in his um, memoir um about his father, who was also an engineer, sort of uh, being able to like work half the year, and then the, re- the the second half of the year he would just like go off for ages and just sort of travel around the country and sort of get pissed and have a great time. What a because wonderful he, line! Yeah, yeah, because he he sort of earned enough that the sort of, sort of that enabled him to do that. Although meanwhile, kind his of, children, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but the point is, if in the if, when you think of the sort of um, when you think of the sort of drudgery of like most of the industrial working classes at, at that time, these guys are not quite as like they have sure. a, a relatively privileged yeah. position. Is okay. what I'm trying to say, and they are in largely um, a union called the uh, Amalgamated Society of Engineers, which is a craft union. Mm. And a we do like an amalgamated of, society. Well, well, but not amalgamated enough <laughs> yeah. at this point. Um, so the, the ASE, the Amalgamated Society of Engineers, um, contained probably 70 to 80% of these skilled engineers. Uh, the rest of them were in various other smaller unions with all with like fantastic names, uh, like the, the sort of Brass Founders Society and this, <laughs> this and that and the the tool makers society and stuff like that um 
and these are the guys that when the when the industry is turned over to uh making the product almost entirely to the production of war material it's the expertise and the knowledge of these guys that that is is key to being able to make that change very quickly and most of uh, Sheffield steel industry gets turned over to, I mean a lot of it was already doing this before the war making uh, munitions and making mm. plate for battleships and making you know war material generally okay so with the with the sort of stage being um, relatively well set in terms of what you've told us about the types of workplaces and the type of workers and the, the type of organization they had and, and the context in terms of the war do you want to um, kind of move on to, to tell us about some of the events that uh, your, your pamphlet tells the story of yeah so the the sort of um 1915 uh, is, is kind of sort of passes off without incident majorly in, in engineering. Uh, there's a big uh, threatened coal miners strike mm. in South Wales, though, so, which again sort of knocks on the head this idea that it, was, it all just went peaceful and, you know, and the government capitulated to the Wales miners, um, which I think gave a great deal of confidence to other people to think even though there's a war on. Um, yeah. The other thing that's happening, of course, is loads of people have joined the army voluntarily and people who, in the language of the time, are referred to as unskilled workers are coming into the factories because there's a great shortage of, uh, of, of labour and women are coming into the factories as well. And that's mm -hmm. something that we'll, we'll talk about in more detail. Um, and the... The trade union's response to this is to sort of sign up to um, an agreement with the government saying we will allow you to recruit these people into these jobs on the basis that when the war ends, you will sack them all and re-employ our guys when they come back from the war. Mm. And supposedly as well on the basis that they will be employed on trade union terms and conditions. So there is a egalitarian attitude towards women in the workplace but only from a kind of selfish point of view yeah. they're like women should be paid the same as blokes but only because if they're not that will that be undercutting yeah. the, the conditions yeah. of the blokes from when they come back from from the war right so and, it, and it's worth noting that the ASE itself doesn't allow women to join right and it takes another world war actually for the ASE to I think it was 1942 when they finally allowed <laughs> to, to join the ASE um I mean I mean that's, that's probably worth just saying an additional sentence on isn't it because it's easy to it's kind of easy to like titter about that and have a laugh about it but that shows you how really how recent to, to be honest you know within two and a half generations yeah. really there were gender bars yeah. on membership of trade unions. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. we, we talked we talked in our episode, I think our, an early episode when we were talking about migrant worker struggles, about union, like local union organisations that were imposing colour bars. Yeah. There's a very recent history of, um, ex you know, reactionary, exclusionary models of organisation. Um, and I think one of the important um, takeaways from that for me is that um, when you encounter, as we probably all have, and I know I have in, in my experience of labor movement activism, you hear people saying things like, oh, like, why do we need these like women's committees in our unions? Why do we need these like 
black and ethnic minority committees and the LGBT committees. You know, we're all we're all workers, aren't we? Like, well, you know, we're all members of the union. We're all we're all workers. Why can't we just have you know one organisation? Why do we need these divisive committees? And it's precisely because you know we're living in a society where within and and, and in a movement where within a few generations these people weren't even allowed to join yeah. the union. Yeah. 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 So, you know, the idea that self-organisation of those groups is is somehow like divisive or, or yeah. like um, disruptive um, in some way is really quite toxic. Yeah, but there was a real cognitive dissonance as well at the time because there was a very, very like, pretty much everyone would say like, yeah, women should be enrolled in the trade union movement, but largely it was the National Federation of Women Workers mm. that, were, that received support and money from unions like the ASE. So the ASE was saying, it's fine for women to be trade unionists, but we just don't want them to be members of our oh, trade union. <laughs> they yeah. should have their own one. But there were also, there were general unions like the workers' union that did allow women members from very early on, who during the First World War grew massively, mm. partly for that very reason, because they didn't have that attitude. So there, were, there was a, there was a, a, a difference of, of opinion on the question of organising women. And um, so what happens is is the workforce changes very rapidly and potentially the, uh, the, the conditions in the workplace change very rapidly. But the, the national leaderships of the unions have basically signed up to, to in law to an agreement with the government saying we will not go on strike for the duration of the of the national emergency, which is how they referred to the to the war mm -hmm. at the time. Um, and so leadership to an extent sort of passes to the guys in the workshop and they don't really they don't really like seek it out they don't really they haven't really sort of agitated for it yeah it just sort of passes to them because the the leaderships have said well we're sort of out out for the count for the until the war ends you know we're just gonna sort of go with it mm. because we've had this promise that after the war everything will go back to how it was before yeah can i ask a question about that then um so you talk about kind of leadership by default kind of devolving to shop floor level because the national leadership has sort of is kind of boycotting itself by 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 signing up to this this kind of peace agreement with the state. But did that not entail, and were there not, well, I know there were attempts from reading the pamphlet, but were there not attempts by the state to kind of enlist the national leadership to um, clamp down on that kind of shop floor level organization and like a counter leadership yeah yeah and, uh, but that that happens when the when the stewards when start act. asserting themselves yeah. and and so the the thing that kicks it off in Sheffield so the 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 Clyde Workers Committee develops in 1915 and that's something that's been extensively written about and I don't have time to sort of talk about it here but uh, only in as much as to say there was a there was a model of organization that people in Sheffield were aware of in terms of the, the development of the Clyde Workers Committee and its subsequent uh, repression by the state, which mm. happened early in 1916. Um, but what sort of really kicked things off in Sheffield was the question of military service, because the other thing about these skilled engineers is that they were supposed to be exempt mm. from military conscription because of the, the how valuable their jobs were. Yeah. 
And the thing that kicks things off in Sheffield in uh, October, November 1916 is that people who are counted as skilled engineers are being enlisted in the military despite supposedly having this sort of certificate from their employer that yeah. said that make, that should make them exempt from that mm-hmm. right so a skilled fitter called uh, leonard hargreaves is enlisted into the military is taken to a barracks in Sydenham in uh, uh, southeast london <laughs> and uh, he cables back to his union branch i've been taken into the military <laughs> yeah. um he actually didn't expect anything to happen in his case. He said, I'm just let, making you aware of this uh, because I don't want it to happen to anyone else. Right, right, yeah. And what happens then is the stewards get together. They've already formed a kind of unofficial committee in the summer of 1916 to deal with various issues that are coming up in the in the workshop because the 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 employment to an extent had been militarized and people in in war industries were sort of subject to military discipline right. and there was something called the munitions tribunal in every city that was set up and it was made up of grandees from the city and employers yeah. and city councillors and whatever and if you whereas before the war if you were like late for work a few times or whatever you'd get maybe get a fine or whatever if you were late for work a few times now you would be hauled up in front of the munitions tribunal and potentially be sent into the army as a punishment. Mm. So the the sort of militarization of the workplace had created a great resentment to the extent that any little thing it's like a it's like any workplace where like the relationship between workers and management is so bad and so it's distrustful down, yeah. it can be any little thing that sort of sets it off and from and, and from people looking in from the outside might think why have you all why have you all kicked off about this <laughs> yeah. this thing because we we don't really understand it from where we are and the thing here was something quite serious which was people being taken into the military so when Hargreaves is taken into the military, the stewards very quickly get into gear. An unofficial strike, something like 10,000 workers come out. They send uh, motorbikes out to the other munitions centres around the country saying, this is happening in Sheffield. Um, do you want to support us? Are you going to come out as well? Um, and within the space of about two or three days, uh, Hargreaves is released from military service and brought back to Sheffield and in fact they don't even go back on the basis of a uh, a, a note from uh, the government saying we're about to release him they don't they decide not to go back until he's like physically put on a train yeah, yeah, yeah. taken back to Sheffield and presented to a meeting of, uh, of, of workers so just on this thing about motorbikes um, <laughs> <laughs> they, but you, they do actually get people come out in solidarity don't they they get other towns come out in yeah, solidarity yeah, with them yeah. so is it Birkenhead come out uh, in it's, solidarity uh, ba- so Barrow comes out but by the time Barrow are out uh, Sheffield have gone back so <laughs> so because the other thing you have to remember about this time is you, you don't have instantaneous yeah. communication to the extent yeah. that you do now and also because it's wartime a lot of communications are censored anyway so uh, there's, there's a there's a, a, a kind of about uh, trade union strategy worth noting in, in the anecdote about them refusing even when they get the commitment from the state that he's going to be released they refuse to go back until 
back to work until he's actually there. Mm. Um, I think there's a there's a there's a useful um, lesson uh, in, in in that in that I think we've probably talked about on the podcast before in that there's a real culture now in the trade union movement of either calling off a strike or um, uh, suspending a strike in return for like promises from the management or not or, not not even promises of an actual concession or commitment to further talks or yeah which yeah, is something that yeah. should be happening anyway so yeah. there's a good lesson there that you know the point of taking action is to win the concrete demand yeah and that if at all possible you shouldn't suspend the action until you've won the concrete demand yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah so the so the hargreaves strike is a, is a great success and it happens very quickly and as a result there's very little historical documentation of it because it was sort of almost over before it yeah. before it began and it wasn't reported in the papers because of wartime censorship <laughs> but what happens a few months after that um, May 1917 is a much uh, bigger, more protracted national strike. Um, and to, so just to set the scene for that, the obvious thing that happens in the, in the interim is that in Russia, mm. the Tsar is deposed yeah. by by largely a movement of of the working class and these things called Soviets or workers' councils appear. And it's known that there is in Russia a sort of almost alternative or parallel government which has been set up through these workers' councils. And that is of great interest to a number of uh, the radical shop stewards in in this country because they've been trying to theorise for a long time the the ideas of trade union organization that they've got and how like how far can you actually take that and mm. what could they potentially develop into and, and what happens in may 1917 with the inspiration from uh the russian revolution but also a number of things that are happening um nationally in britain so so one of the so the, the the two driving forces behind the may 1917 strike really are one is the the extension of what was rather disparagingly called dilution which is the entry of women into <laughs> <laughs> um, the extension of dilution into commercial work that wasn't directly um uh war work happens in a firm in Rochdale and causes a, a, an unofficial walkout there, which starts to spread. And the other thing is that the one of the results of the Hargreaves strike is the government agree to something called the trade card scheme, where they allow the trade unions to issue, basically issue certificates exempting their members from military service mm. as a stopgap. And if you read the memoirs of uh, Christopher Addison, who was a senior civil servant at the time, uh, and it was very intelligent and had a great deal of uh, experience dealing with industrial disputes, he says this was a massive, massive like mental mistake because we basically given the trade unions the ability to exempt people from conscription and saying but saying we're only going to do this for a certain period of time so when they act when they come to revoke it a few months later obviously All hell breaks yeah, loose. yeah yeah you, because you've conceded that and then you've gone back saying yeah. actually we're not going to do that anymore yeah. so those two issues really drive this strike but 
the influence of the Russian Revolution, I think, can't be underestimated just mm. in terms of the sort of... There's, there's a shift in mentality. It sort of starts in the summer of 1916 and it, and it grows. There's a shift in mentality among socialists in the labour movement that, like, it is actually now possible to oppose the war. It's not mm. like it's not like an unpopular minority position. It's, mm. like, becoming more common sense because more and more people are dying at the front... Uh, living conditions are getting worse for people at home and working conditions are getting worse. And but so by the time this strike breaks out in uh, 1917, there's a there's a, a quite a lot of anti-war feeling mm. sort of a, around, although it's not a strike against the war mm. directly, um, which is important. Mm. So you've talked there um, about how there was quite a lot of um, pretty sophisticated sort of theoretical discussion going on amongst um, rank and file trade union activists and shop stewards about the potential for these kind of shop committees um, to, to to maybe to maybe become the embryos of future instruments of working class power along the Soviet model. Um, so so in a way, g given that their horizons were so expansive one might almost get the impression that they've kind of skipped past the whole debate about transforming the union and democratic reform inside the union because their eyes are on a kind of bigger prize, which is social power. But um, that wasn't quite the case, was it? So, yeah. so, what, so what did they have to say about what, what were those dynamics like inside the union and what did these activists who were starting to hear these um, committees say about their own union leaderships and what programme did they have for... Um, the transformation of their own mm, unions. Mm. This is a this is a really interesting question, and it goes back to again before the First World War to the to the Great Unrest, because the the skilled engineering unions weren't weren't as affected by the Great Unrest, which generally was um, uh, it was more generally unions. It was like the railways and mm. the docks and the mines and stuff. But there was an interesting um, group just pre-war, uh, called the London uh, Reform Committee in the ASE, which was a kind of nascent sort of rank-and-file right. group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they actually... Engineers um, for a democratic union. <laughs> they, they, actually, um, they actually sort of turfed out some people on the old executive, but uh, the old executive... Uh, locked themselves inside the London office and refused to allow the like the new people to take. So they had, <laughs> yeah, no, so they had to sort of they had to sort of go in for a hole in the wall and like yeah yeah. So that so that even even the ASE was um was was affected by the sort of rank and file upsurge. I feel I feel we've I feel we've missed the trip by not yeah focusing in on that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, about? there's a great, there's a great. Um, I think it might be. I think it was uh, R. M. Fox's uh, memoirs, who was uh, an engineer at the, not in Sheffield, but in in London at the time, and uh, he recounts this in his memoir, and then he says, and then on my way home, I stopped into an office of a local newspaper, and I sold them the story, and they gave me like a couple of shillings. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was there was there was stuff going on in the yeah, so, in the so there, was, there was a consciousness yeah. around the idea of democratic reform yeah. and transformation and the, and the big itself. the big thing as well pre-war 
was amalgamation. Yeah. So the idea that all these little craft societies should amalgamate into a into a, a, a single engineers union, um, which itself was problematic because that would still be a sort of craft union of mm. skilled engineers, but it would, it one, would swallow one big up craft union yeah. instead of lots of small. And it would, yeah. but it would swallow up all these all these little ones. And then the so the big issue then was to what extent are you simply amalgamating the flawed organizations that already exist or are you using that amalgamation to sort of propose a, a different and more democratic form of trade union that comes out of it and that's what that's what jack murphy sort of gets interested in that sort of question because it's not just in engineering there's a great deal of amalgamation go you know the national union of railwaymen amalgamates in 1913 uh, the Transport Workers Federation amalgamates in 1910, and that evolves into the transport in general after the war. So it's, so it's happening all over the movement. But the more sort of syndicalist-minded of the stewards are very keen that in amalgamating the unions, you don't just create these big bureaucratic monstrosities mm. that are kind of detached from the workshop. So the war, in, in that sense, gives them the opportunity to try and build an organization from the workshop up. Mm. And there's a there's a there's a bit of a historical debate about like what were shop stewards doing before the war. And historically it's been assumed that all they were doing was like sort of collecting members mm. money every week and that was basically their role. I think actually they were already doing more than that in terms of they were negotiating locally on things. Mm. They were sort sort of having a role in that in that sense. How how would they have been elected? They were elected shop by shop. Right. So you would have, in these big steelworks, you would have a, a multiplicity, a very com complexity of different workshops and different, you know. But the the weird thing is that the branches of the ASE were sort of geographic branches. Mm -hmm. So the branch structure of the union didn't particularly allow, because um, it wasn't really based on particular employer or doing a particular yeah, role yeah. the branch structure of the union didn't really allow this like workshop based organization to to sort of develop through branches because yeah, yeah. they were workplace branches so the workers committees when they're formed and the sheffield one is formed in the wake of the hargreaves strike mm -hmm. but they are um there are other committees formed around the country in 1916 17 the workshop committees are formed, I think, in part because the existing structure of the union doesn't really cater for that sort of organisation. Yeah, I, I think it's. I think this is a hugely important point um, from the point of view of this story as as a story about models of rank and file organisation and, and in terms of what we can take from it. Um, because I don't know if I said this in exactly these terms in the last episode, so apologies for repeating myself if I did, but I think in a way you can kind of understand the endeavour of um, rank and fileism, if, if, if it's possible to talk about that as a sort of discrete thing. I think you can understand the endeavour of rank and fileism as being about trying to minimise the distance between the work, the shop floor, the workplace, and the structure of the union. Mm. So, in terms of units of organisation within the union, where decisions are made, where people are elected from, all of that sort of stuff, it's about trying to trying to minimise the distance. Mm. And that's a 
huge ongoing issue in the contemporary labour movement where very often the distance between the workplace and the structure of the union mm. is absolutely enormous in all sorts of ways. So in I mean definitely in the in the GMB, I think probably in Unite as well. Although I think Unite does have sort of official policy that it that it sort of endeavours to have workplace branches wherever yeah. possible. Mm. But I think in, both in Unite and GMB and in Unison you have extremely large branches covering very large geographical areas. The, you know, the elections of which and the officers elected in those elections can often be quite distant from kind of what's going on on the shop floor. And if you're trying to organise um, in your workplace uh, to, to leverage, you, you know, the collective power of yourself and, and your colleagues against your boss in your workplace, that structure's not much use to you. Yeah. Um, so I think this is a, a crucial lesson to take from all of this, that a key... Um, that aim of, of, of kind of transformative rank and file organization today should be about um, trying to minimize that distance, but both in terms of, I would argue, setting up independent rank and file bodies that, that are more closely based on workplaces, but then for those bodies to agitate within unions for structural reform and organizational reform to make the actual structures of the union more closely based yeah, on yeah. on the workplace and, and to minimise that distance. And it's interesting, so the, the the relationship between, in the Sheffield case particularly, the relationship between the unofficial and the official is interesting because there's a there's a point in, um, in uh, I think, during the Hargreave strike where basically the district committee of the ASE says in, in a mass meeting, uh, we cannot... Uh, we cannot um, condone this as mm. a strike because of the wartime condition, the agreements that the union has signed. Uh, we're, so we're going to hand over the running of this to the strike committee and they sort of go off the stage and then they come back on and it's basically like all the same guys <laughs> saying, we're, 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 we're the strike committee. <laughs> so there was, there was an overlap formal... Um, Structure of the union and the informal, you know. That's quite, but that's quite interesting. The the yeah. the big one of the big roadblocks was uh, the district secretary of the ASE was a bloke called William Gavigan, and he during the nineteen seventeen strike. So the nineteen seventeen strike, it's difficult to say exactly when it starts and finishes because people. It's a national strike. It starts in Lancashire and it spreads to Sheffield and then it spreads to all sorts of other places, uh, but. Because confusion and the wartime censorship and whatever, there's various times where people like go back to work because they've heard a rumour that it's been settled, but then the next day they come and get picketed out again yeah. because people are like, oh, actually, we haven't sorted it out yet. If only they had WhatsApp. And then, so it's a bit, a bit of a confused picture, but Gavig, what Gavigan does during that is he gives an inter a big, extensive interview to uh, the Sheffield Telegraph saying... These strikes are endangering the life of soldiers at the front mm. and basically yeah. everyone should go back to work, right? And so even though a lot of people on the district committee were involved in organising the strike, the district secretary, the like top of, top local official of the of the main union, is basically saying this is bad and wrong and you all shouldn't be doing it. 
Mm. And fortunately, eventually, they do get rid of him not long, not long after that. And there's a, a, a large number of uh, motions of no confidence passed, uh, denouncing him as a sort of agent of the capitalist class and <laughs> so in, in very uh, in very poetic terms, you know. Um, but so that's how the tension sort of plays itself out in 1917. It's like the the workers' committee is an unofficial body, but it includes within it a lot of people who have branch positions mm. and even regional committee positions in the in the engineering unions. So, Ed, we've, we've got into kind of the 1917 strike now. Um, and so what I was wondering really was how was that strike resolved? So it was a bit of a stalemate industrially. Like they won, they basically won one of their demands and, and didn't didn't win the other. They the, the thing about extending so-called dilution into commercial work was was scrapped, but they didn't get the trade cards reinstated. So it was a bit of a stalemate. There was a a royal. There was a commission of inquiry into uh, into uh, conditions in the workshops, which was a great tactic of the the governments loved to use at the time of to settle industrial disputes. We'll set up an inquiry mm. and look into it. Um, but what it did do is it gave a great deal of confidence to the workers' committee movement because they knew that they could pull off a national industrial dispute, mm-hmm. right? With as as an unof- as a sort of collection of unofficial committees, and so, they, so that that strike had had very much been led and coordinated yeah, by the yeah, rank and file yeah, bodies, yeah, rock, and, yeah. and and disavowed by the official. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's 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 in, and there's there's a there's government papers at the time where the, the government is um, uh, negotiating with the national union leaders and the union leaders are saying, in as many words, we can't put a lid on this. Mm. You've got like, it's, it's, it's blowing up and we can't control it. Mm. But it's interesting to note as well that the guys in the workers' committee movement, the theoreticians of it, the, the sort of main leaders that are known by history, like Jack Murphy and Willie Gallagher and whatever, they're like revolutionary socialists, but by no means all of these guys are like radicals. Mm. So there's two guys that are arrested during the May strike in Sheffield, uh, Walter Hill and Stanley Burgess. They're arrested and that then becomes an extra demand of the strike to have these guys released. They come back to Sheffield. Walter Hill makes a speech where he sort of says, I saw hay going on strike. It's a bit, a bit of a ball ache, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? I don't really like it, especially in wartime. It's yeah. not very, you know. So it's not exactly what? stirring stuff. You know? <laughs> so, like, sorry to sort of detour. What, what does the other guy say? I found that really endearing. The other guy, he just goes, oh, golly, that was a scene or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then and, and, and Stanley Burgess end, ended up being like a very, very moderate Labour MP yeah. in later years, for, for I think, for Rochdale. There's a, you talked about uh, the civil servant Christopher Addison before, and there's a really good quote from him that you use at the start of your chapter about the May strike that's probably just worth reading out because I think it gets to the heart of what the relationship between the union officialdom and the rank and file militancy was like at the time. So Christopher Addison said that the uh, union executive were, I believe, without exception, delighted that we had arrested some of the ringleaders, although they would have done their best to get them off if they had come to them for assistance, but the improvised strike committees are openly defying their own executive all the time and would not ask for help. Yeah. So there's a real sort of independentist yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, spirit there. Yeah. And that so after that strike, the, the workers committee take the Sheffield Workers Committee takes it on itself 
to try and broaden out because the other thing that's happened in the meantime is Jack Murphy has written his pamphlet, The Workers' Committee, an outline of its principles and structure, where he sets it out as being something that shouldn't just be confined to the skilled engineers, but should aim to encompass all workers in the workplace, including the women that have come into the factories, including the so-called unskilled labour that's come into the factories. And a guy called Ted Lismer, who is heavily involved in the Sheffield Committee, he does he starts to do a lot of work to try and uh, broaden out the committee to in, to to include and organise these other layers of workers. And nationally, what happens is uh, a, a bloke called Winston Churchill gets put <laughs> in charge of the munitions ministry because Lloyd George was, and then he became prime minister. That guy did everything. Yeah, he's, he he's pops up everywhere. Pops up, everywhere. Pops up place, absolutely yeah. everywhere. And Churchill to. As a result of the May strike and the commission of inquiry, he basically says, okay, this is bad. We need war material and we can't afford this sort of strife in the workshops. What we should basically do is buy them all off, right? And he says, every skilled uh, worker in war industries should get a 12.5% war bonus pay rise. And so the Workers' Committee in Sheffield starts agitating then for everyone to be included in that war bonus, including the the so-called dilutees, the people who have come into the to the workshop, and over the winter of nineteen seventeen eighteen, that then becomes the big campaign of the workers' committee. I really, I really like that story about this idea of like Winston Churchill basically handing the movement sort of the the ammunition and the thing that no they need, <laughs> and the thing that they needed to kind of organise around because like. Um, I mean, one of the big problems I think everybody has in the world, but actually I think the left has it very badly, is giving the bad guys too much credit for like being great like strategic thinkers yeah. and just generally really good at shit. So, so it's quite nice to read a story about like the time Winston Churchill did something unbelievably yeah. stupid. I mean, as we know from current events, the staggering incompetence of, of, of the capitalist class can be quite... Uh, can be quite uh, uh, laid bare, yeah. Uh, can, um, I, can I ask a question about the 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 twelve point five percent demand? Mm. Um, because we we talked earlier about um, how there was a sort of there was a sort of grudging acceptance of women coming into the workplace on a sort of on a kind of protectionist basis, and they were saying, well, they should be paid the same as us, but only because after the war ends, we want to kick them out of the workplace, and we want to make sure the man who comes back into that woman's job is is not going to have had his wages eroded. In the scenario you're describing here, where the Sheffield Workers Committee very consciously says we're for the equalisation of this bonus, we want we want it levelled up, we want it extended to everybody. That seems to me that there's a there's been a sh- there's been a bit of a political radicalisation, maybe, and a shift towards a more like progressive, I would argue, socialist rather than sort of sectionalist or or just sort of strictly trade union routine routinist way, way of looking at it. Um, so is, is that is that fair? Yeah, I think there's definitely a shift. It's worth it's worth noting that the the socialists who were the prime organisers of the workers' committee were pretty much committed to women's rights uh, before the First World War. Mm. There was a bit of crossover between them and the uh, suffragettes, for example. Mm. They used to, and th- this is quite a gendered thing uh, in terms of how we would look at it, but 
they used to provide um like physical protection yeah. for suffragettes yeah. outdoor meetings in Sheffield. Um, Molly Morris, who uh, ended up uh, marrying Jack Murphy, was a suffragette activist. And in her autobiography, she talks about how the young radical engineers would always come around the WSPU's, um, the suffragettes uh, office in uh, in Sheffield. So like, have <laughs> political discussions, or is it just that they fancy have political, Oh yeah, you can't see yeah. on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it is it just that they fancied us and they wanted to ask us out? Who yeah. Probably a bit of both. Um, but yeah, in terms of the wider workforce, I think there was a bit of a shift, and there there there's kind of a bit of evidence to suggest that you know people got used to working alongside women mm. and then and then found out that actually it wasn't that bad <laughs> just just sort of went with it or whatever and there's a but there are there are solidarity meetings when the when the workforce the largely women workforce um uh, puts in for its uh, pay rise over this winter there are solidarity meetings of skilled engineers and there's big discussions about whether to go out uh, in solidarity with them, uh, the the war bonus is eventually granted to everyone. So the strike um, wins. Yeah, and the um, what almost immediately follows on from that is the sort of last um, the last dispute to mention really, and the uh, it's a it's one of those you know what could have been mm. moments in history, I suppose, is that we lo- we love a what could have been <laughs> moment on later in um. Early 1918, the government brings another conscription bill to Parliament, which is going to make it easier to take the skilled workers into the army. And the other thing that it does is introduces conscription into Ireland, or originally proposes to do that, and that causes a huge uh, upsurge in like Irish nationalism, and it, that really scares the British government. Uh, but from our point of view, it... Um, it, it gives the workers' committee movement, the shop stewards movement, this choice in early 1918. On the back of all these victories, or at least sort of semi-victories, they basically have a choice of, are we going to do a strike against the war mm. that is explicitly against the war? So what you're saying about this political, there is a political shift and a radicalisation, mm. and they ultimately decide that they're not going to do it because they don't think that that shift has, has happened enough and they don't think that they could go back to their workshops and convince people to strike against the war. Mm. And there's a tragic article in um, uh, the newspaper of the Socialist Labour Party, which was a De Leonite group, which mm-hmm. by this time Jack Murphy had joined, um, where they say... Uh, we'd love to have a strike against the war, but if only our comrades in Germany and Austria and the other belligerent countries were doing it, then we could do it. Mm. But the thing is, in January 1918, that's exactly what happened in Germany and Austria. There was a huge strike of engineers because Germany had its own uh, radical shop stewards movement that had developed in, in tandem. But because of poor communication and wartime yeah. censorship, they, did, yeah. they didn't know that this thing was happening. Yeah, And so... The Sheffield lot and the national lot, they decide to not carry through this um, this anti-conscription, anti-war strike. From that point, uh, the, the Workers' Committee kind of, I think it sort of loses its confidence, it loses its sense of purpose. And then, of course, the war ends a few months later. Um, lots of lots of women are kicked out on, on their ear out of the factories to make way for the, the blokes returning. Um 
trade unionism kind of goes back to business as usual. Um, there's a very brief boom immediately after the war in trade, followed by a very bad slump in 1919. And the employers use that slump as an opportunity to basically sack pretty much all of the troublemakers in the workshops. Mm. So there's a campaign in the Sheffield factory, certainly, and probably nationally, there's a huge campaign of victimisation from the mm. employers. And that sort of breaks the back of the workers' committees then. Um, and also because the sort of uh, industrial peace of wartime between the union leaderships and the government and the employers has ended, the workers' committees seem to have less of a purpose anyway because the, the immediate conditions that they were formed to as a response to no longer exist. Is there an ongoing legacy? What, what was the... What was the impact, the, the, the lasting impact on um, kind of transformative struggle within the union? So is, you know, the presumably the unions look at least somewhat different at the end of this process than they did at the beginning? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, obvious, the obvious difference is that the, uh, the amalgamation movement finally wins its amalgamation at the end of the war and the, the AEU, the Amalgamated uh, Engineers Union, uh, develops mm. and uh, Tom Mann, the great sort of uh, syndicalist uh, figure of pre-war trade unionism, is elected president of the AEU, which gives you a sense that sure. the culture of the of the culture of those unions must have changed somewhat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and so. the kind of um, effect, you know, the, the, the workers, the, the political area of the workers' committee movement would have fed into that. So. Yeah, yeah, and and. Uh, politically a lot of these guys ended up in the communist party not all by any means but a lot of them did um uh, jack murphy sort of spearheaded the sort of faction in the in the slp that that wanted to merge into the communist mm. party and i think the communist party's sort of historic uh, base in the engineering unions basically dates back to to the mm. first world war mm. and that that development and obviously that ends in no, not particularly, not particularly radical uh, way, but although it, although, it, although the, the immediately following this, a lot of those people, the um, radical shop stewards, some of them who had previously and in some ways continued to be kind of syndicalist or at least revolutionary unionist minded, those people who who went on to form the industrial cadre of the nascent communist party. Uh, they're involved in um, forming an organisation which, which we maybe we'll talk about in a future episode. I think we mentioned very briefly in the last one, which is called the National Minority Movement, yeah. which is, I think, in a lot of ways, still the kind of high watermark of um, sort of independent, insurgent, rank and file organisation in, in British yeah. labour history. Yeah. And, and a lot of the key leaders of that Kind of came out of the workers yeah yeah well. and the, the workers committee movement was involved in um the communist international you know, you know murphy went to russia did, mm. you know discussed all these questions of trade union organization with like lenin and other russian bolsheviks mm. and other people from around europe and it's important to to note that like similar stuff was happening everywhere because yeah. these wartime uh, industrial conditions also existed in in all the all these other countries. Yeah. In fact, to to probably to a harsher degree than mm. they existed in in Britain, um, and so the le the legacy I suppose is one of like um, 
what the the early sort of communist movement's approach to to trade unionism is quite heavily influenced mm. by the experiences of the workers committees during the first world war uh, more locally in sheffield um it gives a big kind of um it gives a, a, a big sort of confidence boost post-war to the labor movement and the labor movement um takes power locally in uh, on sheffield council uh, not long after the first world war and initially it is sort of a coalition of labor communist and also uh, people in the discharged soldiers federation which was a kind of left-leaning like veterans mm. group um they sort of come to power in coalition uh, in the council and uh, some of those some of these guys are, are quite heavily involved in that as well um so you know it's 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 an interesting one because we sort of mentioned i think again in the last episode like the nature of unofficial or rank and file organization is that a lot of these organizations they're not they don't have the permanence of mm. formal trade unions they kind of develop in a specific set of circumstances mm. they serve a purpose and then they tend to sort of dissolve so it's quite hard to judge historically like what the impact was because you know there is no such thing now as a workers committee's movement there is no such thing really now as a shop stewards movement in this country mm. um so you can say well you know organizationally it didn't last but organizationally rank and file movements rarely last because of the nature of them although the Teamsters for Democratic Union <laughs> has been around for pretty long time. Well, the, <laughs> the, perhaps the exception that proves the rule, you know, <laughs> because it's the only one you can ever talk about. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's 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 hard to it is hard to judge sort of historical legacies and stuff like that. But you can only take I think you can only take the ideas on their own terms and give them the hearing that they deserve. And the, the the big contribution theoretically, I think, is is this thing of like um, we're not is the Murphy phrases it like we're not against union leaderships for the hell of it. We we'll go with them when they're doing things that we want mm, them to yeah. do, and we'll go against them when they're stopping us from doing the things that we want to do. Yeah, well, that's that's very similar to. I mean, I'm I'm not just doing this to like. I'm not just doing this like for the fun of it to like throw in more Minneapolis references. That's that's very similar, isn't it? Yeah. To, to, to Dobbs' formulation about um aim your fire at the bosses. Yeah. And yeah. if the bureaucrats get caught, get caught in the crossfire, then you know, so you, you, you shoot at the employer um and, and if you catch the bureaucrats in the crossfire if if they put themselves yeah, yeah, in the yeah. way. And I think one of the things that the workers' committee movement did and, and Murphy in particular um is they did move a lot of the so pre-war a lot of people that were interested in rank and file organization were very much like um during the great unrest were sort of coming to the conclusion of like oh the existing unions are shit and mm. we need to basically just like set Start up our again. own yeah. stuff the experience of the workers committee movement provides a model of how you actually don't have to do that you can you can sort of have this like one foot in one foot out approach of like you're still part of the union and trying to transform it but you've also developed an organization that can act independently when it's necessary mm -hmm. to do that and i think that's a big 
a big thing that's missing from the landscape of like contemporary trade unionism in Britain at the moment. I think that'd be a pretty good place to finish. Yeah. Um, so thanks for being with us, listeners. Um, this has been episode 19 of Labour Days. We've been talking with our very own Ed Mustill about um, his pamphlet, The Sheffield Workers Committee, Rank and File Trade Unionism During the First World War. Um, we'll put a link in the episode description to where you can buy this. The pamphlet has just been reprinted, which, let's be honest, um, this was the real reason for um, doing this episode now is because there's been a new print run and Ed is desperate to ship the I need, I need the cash. <laughs> Times are hard. So, yeah, thanks again for being with us. We'll, we'll be back, hopefully, in the not-too-distant future with more discussion of trade union issues and labour history. So, uh, until then, thanks once again for being with us, and we'll talk to you next time. Labour Day's podcast was presented by Ed Mustell, Ellie Clark and Daniel Randall. Find us on Twitter at Labour underscore Days um, and please search for Labour Day's podcast on iTunes.